A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I think it's only when you are materialistic you see these bodies that are made in two different ways. And some, you think, oh, there must be two genders. That's very literal thinking. It's very, very limited thinking. No, I don't think so. I think we are, we are multiple genders. We have, you know. Even though we don't have any language for it, we have so many genders. And uh, if we could discover that and not be caught in this dualism of gender, I think we'd be much better off. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. This is part one of my conversation with author Thomas Moore. Thomas Moore is the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Care of the Soul. He has written 24 other books about bringing soul to personal life and culture, deepening spirituality, humanizing medicine, finding meaningful work, imagining sexuality with soul, and doing religion in a fresh way. In this episode, we speak about his writing process and how he got interested in the subject of soul, how the years he spent living in a monastery influenced his life and work, the trouble with the gender binary in spirituality and psychology and the transgender nature of the soul, taking a soulful approach to yoga and the role of the body in soul work. Now, please sit back and enjoy this conversation with Thomas Moore on The Medicine Path.
Thomas, thank you so much for joining me. It's such a, a joy and an honor to speak with you. Yeah, I look forward to it and I appreciate uh, the opportunity. When I first read Care of the Soul, it really excited me because I felt that I was encountering someone who's speaking my language. And your writing has really helped me find words for things that I'd felt for a long time, but could never quite articulate. And that's allowed me to um, not only talk about my experience and the soul, but also to deepen my engagement with my own soul. And I would say the soul in the world, start seeing soul in the world a lot more. And so I just want to, I want to thank you for that and your continued writing on the subject. Well, you know, that care of the soul was almost 30 years ago. So in fact, I wrote it 30 years ago. It wasn't published until 1992. But uh, so it's been around a long time and it's given me a lot of life, a lot of time to reflect and talk to many, many people around the world about it. So uh, it's been, it was in my life been been quite a phenomenon for me and uh, I'm always happy to talk about that. Mm. Well, I was wondering what it's like for you to know that this book you wrote almost 30 years ago, that it's still touching people's lives today. Yes, it's, uh, it's quite surprising. Um, you know, I've tried to do it again and you can't do it again. I have a feeling that uh, there was a lot of magic around this book. I, I really believe in the muses, the fact that you get inspired and so does the marketing of a book get inspired to the whole, the whole business. I, I, I love the whole business of books, book writing. I love the writing of it and the planning of it and the uh, editing. No, I don't like the editing too much. And then, but I like the uh, marketing aspect and then going out and talking to people about it. It's a big, you know, it's not just writing a book. It's a whole big operation. And I really love all, all aspects of it. And I've got about, uh, I guess I'm approaching now 30 books written, including a couple that haven't been published yet. And um, so I've gone through that process over and over again. And it's funny that care of the soul is the base of it all. And now when I go to sign books, I sign more of that book than anything else. Hmm. Uh, and people are always asking about that particular book. So it's a, it's a phenomenon for me. It's something special. Yeah. I'm really curious. You know, I've, I've published a couple of my own little books. And mm -hmm. I'm curious, what was going on for you when that book started to come through? Did you know there was something special happening, that you're channeling something that was needed at the time or relevant to the time? I felt that way to some extent. I, when I write, I always write as, you know, Blake, William, William Blake said, uh, we are the secretaries, the authors are in eternity. Mm. I believe that the authors are in eternity and I'm the secretary. So I just write down what, I, what I'm told and what I hear. That's certainly true. And I mean that. I mean, that's the process. I really don't have a lot of control over what, uh, what goes there, what goes on. I mean, I can shape it up later, but the actual coming through of the book is not under my control. And I remember when I first uh, had written Care of the Soul, and I was talking to publishers. Uh, my, I, I found an agent for the first time right away, and the agent was certain the book was going to really do well, and I wasn't. 
I, I remember shortly before the book came out, I asked my agent if I'd have to pay back the advance because I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't have that much confidence in it because I had written a few books before that didn't sell very much. So um, it was special, but uh, I remember that um, uh, that the book, uh, I, I thought of it, I, and I talked to publishers about it, as being somewhat parallel to Rachel Carlson's book, uh, Silent Spring, which is... Uh, you know, a book she wrote to, at the beginning of the environmental movement mm. and and inspired so many people to think more about the natural world and our responsibilities or our pleasure of being able to, to take care of that world. I thought, well, I wish that the same thing would happen with Care of the Soul, that it would inspire people to care for their souls and the soul of the world, which is less visible, but very real and uh, and very important. Mm. And when you were writing that book or when you write any of your books, do you adhere to a writing schedule or do you let the muses direct when you're going to sit down and write? <laughs> it's my family who directs when I'm going to sit down and write. I, I wrote most of those books when I, my children were quite young and, you know, starting out being very young and then going through their teenage years and, you don't get a lot of time when you're, at least for me, a family person, you don't get a lot. Of, and I was traveling a lot. So when I was home, it was special, really important time. So uh, I never wanted to, uh, whenever the children needed anything, I never wanted to stop. And I never wanted to say that, no, I couldn't be available. I always wanted to stop my writing and be with them. So ever since I have uh, my style is not to be, not to, uh, not to be. What's the word people use all the time? Disciplined. I, I'm not disciplined. I don't. Not my. Not the way I understand that word. Uh, I work. I write a lot. I work hard at it, but I don't feel like I, I'm disciplined in the sense I have certain times to write. I have to, you know, make everything work. I write whenever I get a chance. I enjoy it. If I have ten minutes, I really go at it. I think if I ever had a whole day, I wouldn't get much done. I just do it when I can. I write late at night. I go to bed late usually. Mm -hmm. And so um, uh, that's a good time for me. The house is quiet and mm. uh, I can work then. Uh, so I don't, feel, I don't feel that the discipline of writing is such an important thing for me. It's the pleasure of writing that's important. Do you think somehow that discipline uh, restricts soul work and the kind of flow that I associate with soul work, let's just call it that. Yes, yes. Uh, I, I feel that one of the most, one of the very important elements in care of the soul is uh, what we learned from the Greek philosopher Epicurus, from which he got our word, our word, Epicurean, which doesn't mean people who eat too much. What it means is Epicurean in that original sense meant uh, that you live for pleasure, that pleasure is going to be the, an important uh, principle in your life, that you're going to make your decisions on that value. I certainly do that. I write when I enjoy writing, and I write for the pleasure of writing, and uh, I write for the pleasure of uh, meeting people who are reading what I'm writing. That completes the circuit. So it's all about pleasure in, in a deep sense, not not in a narcissistic way or in a in a symptomatic way, but in a very deep way, 
the way Epicurus taught that it is uh, it's a life for deep pleasures. Like his primary example of pleasure would be friendship. So it's in that vein. It's not uh, it's not crazy entertainment or anything like that. It's these deep uh, uh, deep seated pleasures that we have, like friendship and family and nature, things like that. Hmm. So for people who maybe haven't been introduced to your work, I think those would be few, but, you know, I think I do have a younger audience who may not know yes. you. Oh, yes. I wonder if you could talk a little about how you define soul and if you see a distinction between soul and what we call spirit. Sure. I mean, that, that's a, those are two big subjects. Yeah. Um, Soul is a difficult word because it's uh, it's not very precise and it has yet it's used. You know, people today do use the word in common speech. They don't think about it much, but it comes up, you know, quite often in speech and in public, like in uh, you know, newscasts and things like that. The word soul is frequently used. I think here in the United States today, one of our candidates is talking about the soul of the country or soul of the nation or something. People understand what he means. He doesn't have to define the word. But because it's it's used in different ways, people do ask for definitions. It's really a word that eludes definition. You can't really define it because it's a bit mysterious. I think what, this way I can describe it is that soul is, first of all, I think we could say a soul is that uh, very deep, deep, uh, place in us where it's beyond emotion where we we have the kind of the roots and the beginnings of our identity and uh, when we feel certain things or go through certain experiences whether of joy or sadness um, they may reach so deep that we say that they touch our soul so it, it really does encompass a sense of who we are and beyond our choice it's not an ego thing not a brain thing today I think a lot of neuroscientists are trying to convince us that there is no such thing as soul, that the brain is doing it all. That's to miss the whole category of what we're talking about. Um, I'm not talking about a physical organ or something you can see. It's an experience that we have of ourselves and also of other people, of certain experiences like a love, you know, when you meet somebody that you really love. You're, uh, John Donne, the poet, said that uh, he caught, called that souls intermingling. I think that's a nice phrase for what happens when people fall in love. So it's that deep. It's soul. It's not just an emotion and not just a relationship. It's about something so deep we can use this word soul. I use it very carefully. I refer to, as you notice I'm doing now, I refer to earlier writers all the time. Mm. I, I don't like to say this is off the top of my head. I'm not making it up. I'm not defining everything myself. It's a tradition that's been around for over 2,500 years. Uh, Plato wrote about the soul, a great deal about the soul, and his followers especially wrote a great deal about soul. That was about, uh, that was, what was it, 300 BC, the 300s BC, so 4th century BC. That's a long time ago for conversations about soul. And then and I've studied the, uh, the whole history, and in the, uh, in the uh, Renaissance times, um, people formed groups uh, sometimes called uh, the, the academy, like like Plato's academy, to study the soul. There was one in Florence in the 15th century that I've studied quite carefully, where the artists like uh, Botticelli and others met with philosophers and, and uh, theologians, and they talked about soul mm -hmm. in this deep way. And the artists went on to 
be inspired in their work by this idea of soul. Mm-hmm. So, um, it, soul is that depth. It is, uh, it, it is like an other within us, an other of some kind, a sense of other, and we can dialogue with our soul to some extent. We can sense the presence of another person's soul when they are maybe really speaking very deeply about what they're going through. Um, and I, I talk about a more soulful conversation when people do speak at that level. Uh, our society could, has its own soul. Our nations and our countries have their soul. The world itself has a soul. This goes back also to Plato, the anima mundi. The world has a soul and in all its particulars. So it's, it's a very interesting, big subject that's been studied and studied and studied. It's not imprecise. It's not unintelligent. It's, uh, but I, that's what I've tried to do is bring its intelligence forward. At the same time, I try to speak in language that's intelligible. Yeah, and well, that's one of the things that I really appreciate about your writing. Um, I think it was in Care of the Soul where, maybe in the preface or something, where you talk about your father was a plumber and you try to write for the plumbers. I and <laughs> I, I come from a long line of factory workers and farmers, and I never went to university or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I really appreciate the kind of down-to-earth style of your writing, uh, which has then helped me get into people like your your friend and mentor, James Hillman, to yes. comprehend some of the subjects that he talks about. Yes. So I, what's, what's that? I think he's a bit more difficult, you know. He, he, he wasn't interest so much, interested too much in really speaking to the world until later on in his career, but his major books are a bit challenging. But they're rich and wonderful. They're the whole basis of how I look at the world. Yeah, I think I've had a copy of um, uh, Blue Fire is the collection of essays, right? I think I've had a copy of that for probably about 15 years or something, but it's only in the past couple of years where I think I've really been able to get into it and understand it. And, you know, I'm 45 now, so something about me maturing and having more experiences of soul and investigating the psyche that uh, has allowed me to like get a glimpse at what he's pointing at. That's Uh, right. But I, I mean, I just found a kind of treasure trove of lectures of his that I've never seen published anywhere else. And as I listened to the, him speak to an audience and engage with them with questions, I find him a lot more relatable uh, or comprehensible yes. for me and also like incredibly funny. And I love like his crudeness. Like he's not yeah. afraid to, uh, to no. cur- curse and tell dirty, <laughs> no. dirty jokes. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I, yeah. I, on the other hand, I, I spent my early years in a monastery and I'm afraid I didn't develop that talent as well as he did. He's very good at it, <laughs> but I do appreciate it. Well, I wonder, yeah, I know your history about uh, going to a monastery quite young and I'm curious about, you know, there's, it's one thing to study the old writers and writings about the soul. It's another thing to have an experience of the soul. And I'm curious about your early experiences of uh, touching your own soul and maybe igniting that curiosity. Well, I think that uh, I think that leaving home at 13, which I did, uh, that was in the, in the, that was a long time ago in, in the 1950s when it was more common for people to do that. 
uh, I left home and uh, that was a big thing. I, I grew up in a very warm, extended family, lots of kids and lots of uh, uncles and aunts and, you know, big, wonderful, warm family. And to leave that, to go to this very rather severe uh, place, you know, mon monastic life and study, studying, uh, you know, I studied a lot of Latin and Greek in my teens. And in fact, when I was 19 and I, my studies went took me to a monastery in Ireland, in Northern Ireland. Um, all my courses were taught in Latin. Mm -hmm. And so there I was, 19 years old, just sitting there in these classes all taught in Latin and doing exams where I had to give my answers in Latin. So that's kind of a, a rarefied atmosphere and quite demanding. And uh, I mean, it was, it was I, the order I was in, the religious order I was in, they called, they called Servites. They were, um, they were a very intelligent group. They were very interested in the highest level of education. That was really good for me. And they were also not overly pious. You know, they were, uh, uh, they were down to earth and uh, they didn't want to be too pious. They, they didn't like these people that we, we meet once in a while who were doing the same thing, who were just way too pious for us. So that was good for me. I didn't want to get into all that, but it kept me in it for a long time until I finally realized that, well, I think I've outgrown this now and I have to move on. Hmm. Going away uh, at that age, so spending your kind of formative teenage years in that kind of setting, how do you think that affected your development? Did you have, did, I wonder like if you had to like live your adolescence at some point later in your life. I did. That's exactly it. I lived my adolescence when I left. Yeah, mm -hmm. I did. Or yeah, that was about the time. Or I think, uh, yeah, it was a little later that I lived my adolescence. A couple different times in my life, the adolescent thing came out. Um, so that was certainly part of it. I, I didn't have much adolescence. Uh, I was a celibate, you know, and that was fine because I think the celibacy issue was 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 not too bad for me because the community life was so intense, very very intense in a very good way. I mean, it was a really sharing of everything. You know, we didn't own our own clothes. You know, we didn't do, own anything privately, and and yet at the same time there was a lot of uh, privacy in the place. We had our there were rules against going into someone else's room, you know, just to and just to disturb their privacy or their study or something. I like that. I'm a very private person. So I appreciated that. And I appreciated the community, which is right there for me. I'm not too good at really. I'm not a, I don't think I'm a terribly social person. I, I, I mean, I've lots of, I have, I have many good friends, but I'm not really terribly social. I'm not a real party person. And that's not because of the monastery, just who I am. Yeah. And uh, so I was able to have this uh, community sort of serve to me there. And it was great. I loved it. And uh, I loved the privacy. So uh, it was in some ways a very good, uh, emotionally good place to grow up in. But the superiors, the people in charge, tend to be kind of nuts. They were crazy. You know, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them were. Hmm. And so it was hard to deal with an authority figure who really is quite neurotic and acts hmm. out on you, takes things out on you. That was going on. So it was a mixed bag, but overall I thought it was, uh, it was worth staying with it. And uh, I learned a great deal. I learned a great deal. And I had to answer your question. I, um, 
I, I, I learned several things that may, may seem strange in answer to your question, but I did a lot of meditating. There was a lot of meditation as part of our life. I mean, a lot. There was a lot of ritual as part of our life, the Mass and you know, so on. And I studied music. I discovered that I was a musician when I was, when I just started in high school, I learned that. Mm. So all the time I was a, a, mon a monk in the monastery, I was also a musician and especially interested in music composition. And I taught myself a lot. I also had some very good teachers. And then eventually got a degree, even while I was in the monastery in music composition at a university. So music too was very important to the soul. It's very important to my soul. And when people ask me today how I meditate, I tell them most of my really real meditation is at the piano. Hmm. I'll play things that I that just take me away much more effectively than if I just sit. Hmm. Can you give um, some kind of taste of what the meditations you were doing at that time were? Because I think that's something that I, I never really experienced. In uh, so I went to a Roman Catholic high school, not because I was raised Catholic, but because they had the best music program in, in the oh, town, really? in the town I grew up in. Yeah. Oh. So I kind of, I converted for four years so that I could go. Well, that's a good motive. You know, that's a good reason. Yeah. So I studied with this really amazing classical guitar teacher there. Oh, wonderful. Um, but I did get exposed to Catholic ritual, um, yeah. but they never talked about meditation. And, oh. you know, Later in life, I learned about, you know, Christian mystics and yes, yes. Contempl contemplation of the heart and things like that. But yes. I wonder, uh, so I feel maybe it's something that's been lost from yeah, yeah. Christian tradition. Yeah, probably. In some, yeah, except in the monasteries. Hmm. Yeah, uh, well, uh, in, baked into this whole long process of studying for the priesthood, there were, it was 13 years by, when I did it. And one year after, so I did, so I did high school and, and a year of college studies. And then the next year was called the novitiate. And that was a year totally dedicated to the spiritual life. And that's where meditation became even more intense. I mean, I had meditated all along before that, but that's when we really focused in on it and studied the mystics. And, and I was expected to read the mystics, and I wasn't even allowed to read newspapers and magazines. The whole idea was to really focus 100% on the spiritual life. That was the theory. You know, if you really did that now for one year, you'd, you'd have like gone through something. You've gone through a tunnel of some kind and you come out the other side, a changed person. Mm. So that was really a, a lot of soul attention or spiritual both. You know, spirit is understood as nourishing the soul. I didn't answer your question about soul and spirit, I realized. Um, that spirit is different. Spirit is more transcendent and trying to get beyond yourself. Soul is trying to get more in yourself and in your home and family and very close to the earth. So that spiritual training was nourishment for the soul when I was 19, 18 and 19, I did that in the Vishya year. And so it was a lot of meditating, a lot of meditating, and a lot of uh, uh, guidance in meditating as well, you know, from the the uh, elders I was with and with people who would visit to teach meditation and teach care of the soul, really, essentially. They didn't use that phrase, but that's what it was. So that was a very intense time for me, and I think, I think they had a big impact. And so when I now, 
I, when I uh, talk about soul, I do feel like I know what I'm talking about, you know, in a way that I, I did have a chance to focus in pretty much on that aspect of my life. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, emerging from that world and having a family and working in the world and everything, I wonder, did you notice, and maybe this is one of the inspirations for Care of the Soul, but did you notice that there was a, a lack of soulfulness in our modern Western culture? Did I? <laughs> oh boy, yes. That's very, very clear, very, very, very easy because I was able to spend a good part of my early life until I was in my mid-20s focused on the inter interior life. That was the phrase we used all the time. I was reading these mystics who talked about the interior life. Uh, and I was reading, I wanted to say this before, I was reading Thomas Merton very intensely then. He was alive when I was uh, in the monastery and writing and publishing. Do you know who I'm speaking of? The mm -hmm. Catholic monk. And uh, he, was a, he was a very interesting guy. I'll just say briefly that he started out as kind of a very secular philosopher very, very educated, very smart, and reading all the, the most recent philosophers in New York and trying to find his way. And he actually ended up entering the most, uh, one of the strictest monasteries in the United States uh, mm -hmm. at Gethsemane. And he uh, became a Trappist monk and wrote his books there. And he was also interested in Eastern uh, mysticism and, and Eastern teaching. So he included, he wrote books on Zen, he wrote books, he, he was interested in Eastern meditation as well. So I would immediately, even just reading him, my mind was broadened toward getting beyond just the Catholic tradition. And I, I met Paul Tillich at that time. He was, he was a Protestant theologian, theologian who was very influential on me, who expanded the whole notion of what God means and what religion's about. And he, he defined God as the ground of the being the ground of being, existentialist philosopher, had a big impact on me. So um, even when I was in the monastery, I was expanding my thought a great deal. I studied the Gospels with uh, Dominic, John Dominic Crossan, who was in our order, who became one, now is probably the, one of the most uh, celebrated uh, experts in the Gospels in the world. And so I was able to study with him then early on in my 20s. All of that um, gave me a, a you know a, a very changing, open-minded, up-to-date view of this care of the soul. And so when I looked, when I left all that and saw where the world was, I thought, boy, this, there's something badly needed here. And I thought I knew what it was that was needed. Hmm. I wonder um, if you could speak a little bit about what you consider to be the symptoms of soul loss? Do you mean culturally or do you mean personally? Maybe both, if you could touch on both. Yeah. So uh, the loss of soul for the person very often is felt as uh, uh, having no purpose, being aimless, uh, not really a strong sense of values. And... Um, not really knowing who you are, uh, being heavily influenced by the media. And so to the extent that maybe your thoughts are just uh, echoes of the media, whatever they say, 
Uh, so it's like a vacancy. A vacancy is one way in which the soul loss is felt. There's nobody at home. You know, the, the, we're not just egos. We are that deep. That's what soul is all about, that we have this very, very deep uh, identity. And there's something, the mystics always said this, uh, not just the Christian mystics, the Greek mystics said that, that the soul, when you go deep enough into yourself, you realize that your soul overlaps with the world soul or with the soul of every other human mm. or every other being, even animals, things. So that our, where we, our, our roots are very, very big and they're not just so personal and individual. And uh, so if you are soulless, that means you're out of touch with those roots and don't know what to do with your life. Mm. And the things that you do don't really feel satisfying. Because you're not there, you're not you're not letting that deep that depth like show itself and come up, kind of erupt into your life and shape you, shape who who you are, what you're doing, what you how you think. And it's very similar in the culture at large that we uh, I think today one of the biggest problems I think we have is that we have surrendered to a totally materialistic view of things of everything. Even today, if you study psychology, you quantify everything. You turn it into a number, an object. Mm. And we think that's great because it's reliable. You're not, just, you're not just relying on some person's subjective thoughts about things. Well, I would turn that upside down. I think that when a person has lived thoughtfully and has really explored life seriously for many, many years, it's more important to listen to them about how things are than to follow somebody who's just counted numbers all their life. So I think that's one of the biggest uh, sources of our loss of soul today is everything is turned into materialism and therefore we, 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 don't, we don't even have a good relationship with the things in the world. I just gave a class the other day about the soul of things. Mm. You know, that I, I get that idea from Hillman and from Robert Sardello, two colleagues of mine, um, that the world, it's the, the things of the world have a soul. And if we don't understand that, then we we try to, our whole life is about consumerism and buying things and having more possessions and looking at your bank account as if that's some measure of who you are. That's where we are in the world. I mean, just look around. That's where we are. So um, mm. it's this, uh, really care of the soul is a very rare thing these days. Mm. Speaking of the soul of things, just yesterday I was making coffee with this little, um, Italian coffee maker made by Alessi. And I was just uh, kind of in love with it. You know, it's something I've had for years and I've made thousands of cups of coffee in it. And it just to me, it's like this perfectly designed, functional, beautiful object that brings me joy every time I use it. And like, I cherish this little coffee maker. <laughs> of course. And of I was kind of like laughing do. to myself about like, wow, this little of coffee. Of course you do. <laughs> It has a soul. You know, it has a quality. It can relate to you. It can make you feel joy. I mean, it can connect with human beings. That's not you doing that. It's it. Yeah, and I was thinking about just that I could get a sense of the designer in the creation of that. And I find that in a lot of Italian uh, kind of kitchenware stuff is that there's this, you could really get a sense of the person who designed it and made it. And also that it was in the design is something that's meant to provoke some joy. Like I have a little um, toothpick holder and it's a, a hat, 
like a top hat upside down with a rabbit in it and you pull up on the rabbit and it brings up all the toothpicks and it's every time I use it, it brings me some joy. <laughs> yes. yes. I, I, I do this thing. I, I wrote a book not long after care of the soul called the reenchantment of everyday life. Hmm. And in there I talk about, uh, uh, how the craftsmen in the 19th century used to put animal parts on furniture and other objects. I know they, I know when I grew up, I had a, I had swans on my rocking chair and I was a child and I'd look at these swans carved into the rocking chair. I think that's the way that people animated the world. And the word animate means to bring soul to, anima means soul. Animated the world with animal, animal means soul. So, right. uh, so uh, yes, I think that uh, there are many ways. I've got something here I can show you. I have a, I have this little thing where you can put my glasses on. It's a face with, you know, I can just hang my glasses on it when yeah. I need to take them off. I don't have them on now, and just hang them on there. So um, this is an animate thing, you know, because it's we know it because it's got a face carved into it. That's a way in which we try to bring out, withdraw, bring out the the anima, the anima, the soul within a thing or an object. I agree with you and fully understand what you're saying about the maker, but I don't want to reduce the soul of the object to the maker. It's not just that, that maker's soul. He's remember he's he or she is is only the secretary. Right. The authors have done have made this thing. This has come out of that collective soul somehow, and uh, this made this world soul. So being in touch with that thing is being in touch with the thing itself as being alive and having, and being animated. Yeah, great. And kind of just touching back on um, the soul of culture and on the personal level and how they interact. Um, when you were talking about that, I was. I was, I was thinking about how at this point in time in our culture, the role of men is really in question. And I think a lot of men are unsure of their place in the world at this time and feeling very unrooted, to use your words. And I think that's showing up in, you know, I, I work as a coach with people and I've been seeing more and more older men as I mature and i think they can start to trust me more i'm starting to work with more of them i'm finding there is the sense of uh lack of purpose uh there's something that's kind of going around the zeitgeist right now about a meaning crisis and i think we're seeing that in men's lives as uh this, this unrootedness which is leading to a depression and uh, a rise in suicide rates among middle-aged men now, is this somewhere where the where the culture is influencing the personal, or is the culture an expression of what's happening on a personal level? No, of course they they interact. Uh, I don't know which is which is more prominent. Uh, my guess is that the culture probably has a lot to do with putting that weight on the person. Um, like you know, a person goes to work. Uh, we have media telling us all day long, how to think, what to do, what's important. Um, so it's hard to be an individual in these days. 
Jung, Jung, who Jung, you know, who I follow pretty closely, and Hillman did, uh, wrote a great deal about the soul. Just think of his early book called Modern Man in Search of a Soul, uh, meaning person, the modern person in search of a soul. Uh, that uh, he he um, he felt that uh, that the soul has a is by nature feminine, and the spirit is masculine. That's what he felt, that these qualities, though he's just using those terms, who knows, you know, it might be an expression of his own time about gender. But there's something to that, I think, that anima, it's a, it's a feminine form of a word, a Latin word, and it means soul. So I think that men, uh, men have been brought up from day one, it seems, you know, try to look back historically, it's hard to find the end, you know, where, where does it all begin? Men have almost forever been expected to be a certain type. They are the, the hunters and, the, and they become the leaders because they have muscle and they have, they've done the hunting. And so, you know, that's the kind of person a lot of people wanted to be a leader. They don't understand that a woman could be a wonderful leader because they were always looking for strength rather than for uh, maybe uh, sensitivity and imagination. So men could easily, could easily, I say easily, I mean if they really wanted to, could become, uh, could expand their sense of who they are and not, not absorb this cultural identity that is pressed upon them. But they need to be shown that, that there's something valuable in making that shift mm. and that it's all right not to be full of muscle and be strong about everything. Uh, and and to be uh, 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 maybe too assertive, you know, and all these things, too controlling. Because behind all that, pushing men out into that role, it creates a great deal of fear as well and anxiety. So men often, they're not supposed to be anxious or fearful, so they mm -hmm. cover that over. So it's a hidden anxiety, and that's really hard to deal with. Mm. hidden anxiety it's there and it's doing its work but nobody's admitting to it it's a very difficult it's difficult in personal relationships with men it's difficult with social organizations with men and women might have a tendency then to move into the opposite direction and uh, it's understandable because men have abused women and have taken advantage of women for their own purposes they're able to maintain their their leadership and their superiority by making women inferior. Mm. That's a, you know, that's not a good situation. And it's been going on for, again, for thousands of years, not just centuries. So it's a tough thing. And we're now becoming more aware of these inequities and some of the deep, deep problems with these kind of gender identities. Um, so we have a chance, I think, to the soul can, is, is really, I think the soul has millions of genders. Not two. I think it's only when you are materialistic you see these bodies that are made in two different ways, and some you think, oh, there must be two genders. That's very literal thinking. It's very, very limited thinking. No, I don't think so. I think we are, we are multiple genders. We have, you know, even though we don't have any language for it, we have so many genders. And uh, if we could discover that and not be caught in this dualism of gender, I think we'd be much better off. Mm. 
Mm. You know, it's really interesting that we've come to this because um, uh, this kind of binary heteronormative uh, element that I find in the yoga, in the, the kind of new age spiritual world, but also in depth psychology, this like fundamental split between the masculine and the feminine. And I've been trying to sort out my thoughts about this um, and writing about it actually, uh, you know, today. And so it's interesting to get to this because I was kind of thinking about asking you about this, but not sure if I wanted to go there, but maybe I will, uh, is just ask you what you think about this, um, this, what I'm calling the binary heteronormative division that, or the categories that we then ascribe qualities of being, uh, elements of nature. We, we're putting everything into these binary boxes. And in my own life, I've, I've never felt quite comfortable with that. And I'm thinking that maybe what's going on in the culture with the transgender movement is helping to push our thinking beyond where it's been stuck for the last number of hundreds of years uh, to a place where we don't feel the need to categorize uh, elements of our experience or elements of nature into these gender categories. I'm wondering like, what you think of that, because it is a part of depth psychology and Jung very much talked yeah. about masculine, Jung feminine. Is, Jung is very genderized yeah, into two genders, right? Well, and, and the question for me really is like, uh, is there really any benefit to doing that? And if there is, okay, sure, then maybe I can, I can play along but I, I've really been unable to find any benefit and only detriment in that it creates a lot of division uh, and exclusion. Yes, I, I'm with you there entirely. I've written about this a little bit. I have a book called Original Self, a mm-hmm. book of short, very short essays. I have a, I have a little essay there about uh, gender being a, a really mistake to make it divided into two. In fact, I say every individual has its own gender. Or her own gender. Oh, beautiful. So um, that was, so uh, uh, yes, I do agree with you that um, that transgender, all these things that are happening, just ordinary homosexuality, um, uh, experiments among people generally with trying to, to uh, be more uh, uh, identify with uh, with uh, extensions of gender, trying to be more plastic, more like, more flexible about gender. All these, like dress and, and, you know, a lot of musicians are helping, I think, to move the gender, to stretch our notion of what gender is. I think it's absolutely essential. Mm. I don't like the number two very much. I think it gets us into trouble. It just gets us into trouble. It's not, it's not, not, not a good number. So whenever <laughs> we divide anything into two, we're, we're really having... We're setting ourselves up for difficulty. So, uh, you know, this is one of my favorite aspects of Hillman's uh, psychology is what he calls psychological polytheism. Psychological polytheism, meaning that our psyche is very much like, he's not speaking theologically, but our psyche, the soul, is very much like, let's say, a polytheistic religion like the Greeks or the Romans or some Hindu religions. The, where um, there are many gods and goddesses, that's showing that we are really made up of many fundamental directions, identities, and personalities, and 
that's who we are. We're multiple. We're not, we're not, we're not binary. We're not, you know, we're multiple. So we are poly, we are polytheistic. And that has been the most fruitful idea for me, one of the most in Hillman's work. And that's what I read first in him, I think, was polytheism. And that I got the idea pretty quickly. And I thought, yeah, this is it. This is what I'm going to stick with. And I have. I, I, uh, I do not, uh, I try not to think in binary terms or in monotheistic terms. And um, uh, there's something else you're gonna, you were saying about that, uh, but I'll have to remember that. I forget it at the moment. <laughs> mm, well, you know, I, I was asking about um, the, the benefits of working in that binary mode, if there are any, or if it's, it just creates, a, if it's detrimental to our conversation and understanding of ourselves. It's, it's detrimental. Totally detrimental. I wouldn't give another thought to it. Get rid of it. Don't do it. It's not. It's not good. And I, I, I'll tell you one of the things I want to say. You will never find in my books, unless it's very unusual that it seems appropriate, but almost never in my books will you find the words masculine and feminine. Hmm. The masculine, the feminine. I don't write that. A lot of spiritual people today talk about the feminine. This is the feminine. How great it is. Now we need more of the feminine. I don't think so. What we need is more polytheism. We need multi-genders. We don't need one. We don't need to get these two together and keep it two. We need to uh, expand our very idea of what gender is about and how it's, it's an aspect of soul, really, which is polytheistic. Well, that's so great for me to hear and, and so affirming because um, it's been a difficult thing for me to articulate my, my thoughts about it because it's, it's for a long time just been a feeling that that's never felt right to me. Um, and so I've been trying to articulate that and to point out examples of where that kind of binary thinking fails us. Um, and really where I've come to in this essay is like, I kind of boldly feel like saying, let's just drop it. It's an old idea. And we have to understand, like we have to allow ourselves to grow beyond old ways of thinking. Yeah. And maybe this whole cultural movement of transgenderism and gender fluidity is helping to push our, our concept of who we are. Push, I it, think that's push it forward out, out of the old ways of thinking that were created by old men a long time ago. Yeah, that's right. And you know, the other thing about gender is that it's too simple. It's too easy. It's too easy to divide things into two. That's simple. You know, then you have a good guy and a bad guy in it, you know, and someone's right and someone's wrong. Someone's worthwhile and someone isn't. It's all, it always turns out that way. And life is much, much more subtle and complicated than that. What did the Greeks had? They had you know, countless gods and goddesses, but also they had a spirit. They had names for some of them, spirits of the springs, the forests, the trees, and shrines for all of these. It's like the whole world is not only multiple, having its own identity, but the whole world is both spiritual and soulful, full of soul and spirit. And they understood this, and uh, we don't. We, we don't see it. We live in an inanimate world. We live in a world of things and of nature that is what we consider to be not alive but dead. These are objects, dead objects. We are animate, they are not. That's how it works in our contemporary society. Mm. And so that's a binary thing too. That is deadly, deadly. So um, I think that the idea of polytheism goes hand in hand with soul, that uh, soul and spirit. That if we live at a deeper level, that we would realize how multiple life is and now we have to 
be quite large and expansive than ourselves to hold all that multiplicity. Yeah, exactly. And that's, I think, where I came to is one of the greatest detriments to this binary way of thinking, creating these oppositional categories and trying to put everything in life into them, is that we lose a lot of that complexity and diversity, which is what makes life wondrous in the first place. And so I think it's it's a way of... Uh, like almost like a wounding of the world's soul to try and limit it so much and try to like understand it and categorize it and label every part of it. I was going to say before too that um, when we talk about, let's say in sexuality, we talk some multiplicity there rather than just, you know, male, female, masculine, feminine. Um, A lot of people, maybe especially men, uh, get uh, threatened by it. They feel threatened and they want to, to uh, uh, sort of uh, express their, their fear through uh, violence or aggression, rejection, all that kind of thing. And homophobia is just, you know, so aggressive. And it's obviously fear, but it's translated into this aggressive way of being. So there's something threatening about, I think, having a soul you know people talk to me sometimes as though this care of the soul idea is sweet and sentimental it isn't it's very challenging it's full of uh, takes a lot of courage i think to to have a soul and live with that be faced with new life every day something new you have to deal with and take on Mm. it can be fun after a while but it can be threatening especially when you're not used to that when you when your world is so neatly explained and simply simplistically explained through you know uh, divisions through opposition and once you get past that oppositional thinking and can then you're open to new things coming along every day and you can have some more joy in your life and not have to feel you have to bring out your weapons every time something new comes along yeah i think another defense against that is logic and especially the logic i see expressed by intellectual men um as i was writing my essay i was reflecting on jordan peterson who has built a platform on this uh, assertion that he offers an antidote to chaos and chaos being that complexity diversity, uh, mystery of life, and how kind of scary it can be to open yourself to embrace that kind of complexity. And so the reaction is this this patriarchal way of thinking, uh, and that somehow logic is going to solve the problem of chaos as if chaos is a problem. Well, chaos is a Greek word. It goes back to the early Greeks, the very earliest and uh, we have some of the earliest uh, hymns and myth of the Greeks uh, by, written by someone called Hesiod. And uh, he talks about chaos. Chaos is one of the first of the divine figures to emerge in, into life. And out of him comes the world. Out of chaos comes the whole world. Like everything comes out of chaos. And I think that's a it's something to think about that chaos is not presented as a negative thing it's driving you crazy but that this is the this allows or the origination allows things to come into being and that's true in your own life you have some chaos that's going to allow something to happen 
Mm. Now, you don't want to be chaotic in your life. You don't want to act that out all over the place. You don't want to have a chaotic lifestyle. But you can allow chaos as a principle of life, of soul, to, to appear. And you can feel some chaos in your, in your existence at some time. Let's say you, you're just finishing up a marriage. You get divorced, and you may feel very well feel chaos at that time, that your life is chaotic, that it doesn't hold together the way it did for so long. Well, there's a way to contain that or to hold it, to be with that chaos and let it show itself and let it uh, present itself for being the origin, the, uh, the, the, the opportunity for a new life to take place. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think chaos is only a problem when we have a need to uh, attempt to exert control, right? Which is, I think, based in a f- fundamental fear like an existential fear. Yeah, well, I'm I'm afraid of it. I think it's I think it's right to be afraid of it. Uh, totally. Don't, I don't want to. I don't want to pretend that. Oh, I'm not afraid of these things. I think we should be. We are afraid of these things. Chaos is fearful, and you have to know how to deal with it so that the fear doesn't ruin everything. You don't want to be driven by your fear or have your life be determined by fear. That's that's certainly not going to work. But to have fear in your life is no problem. Yeah, and I think I was reflecting on this this morning too, uh, how uh, fear or terror is like an element of awe. Like if it's if it's actually awesome, it's going to be actually quite a scary thing to confront. Yes. Yes, I'm. I'm You know, my degree is in religious studies. I have a PhD in religious studies, and one of the topic one of these sources we i always we always i always heard quoted when i was studying religion was this definition of religion as that which is uh tremendum efficiens which means it's uh, it's a mysterium tremendum efficiens that's a latin phrase meaning a mystery that is tremendous or tremend means to fear fearful causing mm. fear causing fear and awe at the same time mm. Fear and awe, that's what religion is by definition, a mystery that causes fear and awe. Mysterium tremendum et fascinans. Mm. Well, um, one of the ways that uh, I kind of engage with the mystery is through a daily yoga practice. Mm-hmm. And in Care of the Soul, you've got this great paragraph or two about yoga and I was so kind of delighted to hear you talk about it because it's something that's just so important in my life. Um, and maybe I'll, I'll just read it here or read a part of yes, it. Yes, sure. This part especially resonated with me. The ensouled body is in communion with the body of the world and finds its health in that intimacy. A soul-oriented yoga might go through its many postures and forms of breathing while paying attention to the memories, emotions, and images that arise in conjunction with physical motion and posture. Inner images are as important to the soul in exercise as images from nature and culture are to the person on a walk. And I love this bit. Often yoga is performed with the ideal of transcendence. We want to get our bodies trimmed down to match a perfect image of ourselves. Or we want physical or psychic powers that go beyond the normal or what we're accustomed to. Behind the practice of yoga might be a perfectionist fantasy or images of purity, but soul is not about transcendence. Soul yoga 
wants more intimacy between consciousness and the soul, between our body and the world's body, and between ourselves and our fellow human beings. Man, that is just one of the best descriptions of yoga, the way I've experienced it, that I've ever read. So do you practice yoga? I mean, you must have some notion of it. I think you're married to a yoga teacher, right? I am, yes. Uh, And my daughter has been a teacher of yoga uh, since she was about uh, 10 years old, I think. She's 28 now um, and still teaches it. Now, uh, so I I know most about yoga, not only from them, but most from my wife and daughter having lived with them and being, you know, I, I, I've never been drawn to the practice of yoga as such myself, I have to say. I've done a, a little bit with my, with my uh, wife and daughter, but uh, very little. And, um, but I, in my studies, I, early on, I discovered that in India, yoga is defined more broadly. And Hatha yoga is not the only form of yoga. There are other forms of yoga, you know, like bhakti yoga devotion, uh, jhana yoga, you know, like knowledge and study. I have felt that, here's something, that this won't really probably answer your question too directly, but I felt I learned when I was in the monastery that study was a form of yoga. Mm-hmm. Now, they didn't use that word then, but I think it's the same idea. I learned in the monastery that the study was part of the spiritual life, an essential part of the spiritual life. The development of mind, the development of, uh, of thought, thinking, logic, mm. uh, being able to research, being able to write, being able to express yourself, to teach. Those are all part of a particular branch of yoga, I would say. Mm. And so... I, that's how I see it. Now, that's myself. I don't know if anyone else in the world would agree with me, but that's, that's how I, I see it. And so I don't feel that I have to practice yoga, the Hatha yoga, in order to be practicing yoga. In fact, you know, uh, Henry David Thoreau once said that, uh, uh, that, uh, his 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 way of being in nature was his yoga. That he was a yogi, mm. and I I I got I got supported by that. I felt because he understood too, and he's a great model for me. That um, there are different ways of doing yoga, even if they're not uh, traditional. I sometimes tell yoga teachers. I tell them. I say when they I, I did this recently with a senior yoga teacher. The two of us were in front of a big audience talking, sitting together next to each other talking. So there, I, w- I would say two yogis, you know, but of course she was the one who was considered yoga, the yogi. I wasn't. But I said to her, I said, uh, you know, um, you've done wonderfully with uh, developing your strength and your flexibility and your legs and arms and gut and all of that. But, you know, I've worked on my ears all my life. <laughs> my body too. I have a, sort of an ear yoga. I have uh, trained my ears to hear extremely well as a musician and as a composer all my life. I took classes in ear training. I've, I've really, really worked at being able to hear, and that's my yoga. You know, it's focused around my hearing, not my flexibility of yeah. my muscles, but it's a form of yoga. Yeah, I think uh, in the, you know, 
in the Yoga Sutra, the way Patanjali talks about yoga, it is really about that quality of attention, being able to direct all of the powers of your mind toward one object. And, and that object can be so many different things, um, including the body, to, to understand our body more, to feel more at home in our body, and to start to realize that our body is never separate from the world's body. Uh, so I think it includes all of the elements that you talked about. You know, there's even um, one of the aspects of Patanjali's yoga is Svadhyaya, which translates to a self-study, but it's uh, self-study through reading and chanting texts. Yes, right. So very much, I think, what you're probably doing in the monastery was a form of Svadhyaya. There, yeah. Another essential element is Tapas, or the austerity, which you underwent yeah. in the monastery. That's right, that's right. And Ishvara Pranidhana, which is a devotion or surrender to a higher power. So yeah. you were doing a yoga in the monastery, even I if think you so. calling it yoga. <laughs> now, having said all that, I would say that it's also probably very useful to talk about the... Not, now, my wife and daughter have been practicing kundalini yoga for many years. And um, so that is more than just a physical yoga. Um, but one thing my wife did was she, she, she worked with James Hillman for a while herself, and she knows that world quite well. And in our conversations, we, of course, she's been with me. I, I'm talking about it all the time. So she developed what she has called a soul yoga, and she called her yoga studio soul yoga. Mm. And her idea was to include these elements of the soul, not just spirit in the in the practice of yoga. I think that the physical yoga that they do is extremely important. It's very good for uh, for so many reasons. It's you know, it fits into the whole scheme of caring for soul and spirit. That's what it does. It fits into that whole thing. So I don't mean to get away from that when I talk about these other forms of yoga. It's just that I've not been I wasn't drawn to it. I've been drawn to a lot of things in my life, but not not to yoga and uh, that kind of practice of yoga, but I'm really happy and I feel fortunate to be and have been so close to it through uh, my family. Mm -hmm. well, I wonder if you could maybe talk a little bit about the the role of the body in care of the soul or soul work. Let me quote uh, William Blake once more, one of the great soul writers. He said, the body is the soul in our time perceived by the senses. Mm. The body is the soul in our time, soul, the soul perceived by the senses. So the body is the soul. I agree with, uh, with uh, William Blake on that. And so there's not really, you, you look at the body, you deal with the body, you're dealing with the soul, depending on your attitude. You can objectify the body if you want. And I think a yoga person might very well do that. They may not see the expressiveness and the poetics of the body. It's mm -hmm. a little bit similar. I mean, it's similar to, uh, I'm thinking now of another writer, uh, Gaston Bachelard, a French philosopher who wrote, wrote a book called The Poetics of Space, where he, in it, he examines an attic of a house and says, now, what is this attic? What a, what a remarkable space to go into. What are you doing when you go into an attic and you're, you're surrounded by fantasies that are only there available in the attic. 
not in the basement. That's an entirely different place. So it's like saying that, oh, there's a, there's, there's a different level of meaning and speaking going on at this particular part of the house. Well, I would say the same is true of the body. So any, you name any part of the body and you can look at it as a, a particular place having its own atmosphere, its own purpose, its own world. And uh, that would, that would uh, be getting closer to the soul of how soul and body are one. Mm. Yeah, beautiful. So in medicine, it's a big deal. I spent a lot of my time working with medicine, hospitals yeah. and doctors and things like that, because medicine similarly treats the body as not having soul. Not the soul, the body being soul would be even beyond them, you know. But mm. modern contemporary medicine doesn't get that point, really. I know. I've been, I've been trying very hard for many years to, to uh, talk to uh, people in medicine about it. That concludes part one of my conversation with Thomas Moore. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting the podcast by giving it a rating on iTunes, sharing with your friends, or by becoming a Patreon subscriber, where for just $2 a month, you gain access to podcast extras, including the second part of this interview and a lot more. You can find out how to do that at medicinepathpodcast.com forward slash support. Thanks so much for listening. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face. Until we meet again on The Medicine Path. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 